Uh, our scripture reader today is Kim Silbor. Uh, she's going to be reading Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. In honor of God's word, please stand. Listen as I read. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so we are in a series um, in Revelation, uh, really in Revelation chapter 2, and Revelation chapter 2 and 3, uh, we spent our introductory week in Revelation chapter 1, seeing how it is that uh, the author of this letter, John, uh, sets up uh, these seven letters, seven letters to seven real, seven local churches that existed in the first century, and uh, Jesus has a word uh, for these seven churches. And today we get to look at the second of those seven churches that Jesus uh, chose to write a letter to, the church in Smyrna. Uh, as, as we consider uh, this, this text, um, it is quite a fitting uh, moment uh, for us. Um, as, as we just were talking about Lent, Ash Wednesday, as we were talking about the, 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 uh, the nation of, of Ukraine and the people of Russia, uh, man, if you, if you have not seen uh, the, some of the statements that have been coming out from Russian pastors, of uh, Russian pastors calling their people to be faithful to Christ, not faithful to Putin, um, there, is, uh, there is valiant, honorable uh, behavior going on uh, all around in, in the midst of that, in these hard, difficult situations, in the burdens that we carry in this room. The, tri the trials and the struggles that, that some in this room are, are navigating right now. Some have been navigating for months. Some have been navigating for years. Some have been navigating for their whole life. As we come to a letter like this, in just these few verses, in the middle of Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 2, to this church, uh, there, is, there is a word for us. There is a word for us in this moment. There's a word for us in the middle of Lent. There's a word for us as our world faces uh, a war. It's a, the word for us as our world comes out of two years of, of a global pandemic. And there's a word for you in whatever trial and suffering uh, you're enduring. Jesus has something to say. So we'll just take a quick minute and talk about Smyrna. There's not a ton of information about this place. Uh, there is some. Uh, it was uh, a, certainly a, a city that was around in the first century. Uh, and it was a city like in the first letter that we looked at last week, the, the city of Ephesus. Smyrna is a port city or was a port city. And that, that uh, granted it some significant value. Uh, a port city had an automatic uh, benefit to their economic uh, situation. And Smyrna was a port city as well. So Ephesus was a significant city last week. Smyrna, significant city this week. But there's a difference in Smyrna versus Ephesus. Unlike the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna was small and struggling to survive. Uh, if you remember last week when we talked about the church at Ephesus, uh, we recognized that their leaders were like well-known leaders. They, they, had, they had the kinds of, of leaders 
who wrote books, and their church had a notable, uh, like a significant footprint uh, in, in the early church. Not, not so with the church at Smyrna. Um, they are small, and they are struggling. Again, they live in a great spot. Uh, if you, what we do know about Smyrna, it was actually a pretty modern city. Uh, there's record of it having paved streets, of it having a library, of it having a gymnasium. Uh, so this is some of this is if the Greek influence that had uh, flooded that area, and Smyrna benefited from a lot of those modern amenities. And so the city itself was significant. It was a port city. It, it, the city itself was not poor. The city itself was not necessarily small, but the church there was. The church there had a, a, a lot of challenges that it was trying to navigate. Uh, Smyrna also had a Jewish influence. It's part of the historic record of that location. But that historical record is not good news for Christians. Various historians, uh, Polycarp would be one of them, they refer to the Jewish, the Jewish persecution of Christians as being so severe that it led to the martyrdom of, of, of Christians. That Christians were actually killed by Jews uh, because of their faith in Jesus. And when we come to this letter and we begin to consider the words in these few verses, uh, Jesus is affirming this reality. Jesus is, is presenting to us this reality that the historical record uh, reflects. Now, if you remember, in each of these seven letters, uh, Jesus reaches back into chapter one. So there's seven letters scattered over chapter two and chapter three. And for each of the letters, when Jesus starts the letter, he reaches back into chapter one and he grabs some little phrase or little idea that he wants to introduce himself to that church with. So he does not use the same introduction for all seven churches. He, it's, it's the same Jesus. It's the same Christ. But he introduces himself with intentionality. And for the church in Smyrna, the description that Jesus, is, that Jesus uses of himself is that he is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. And so as Jesus writes a letter, a relatively short letter, to this church in a cool place, but a small church, a struggling church, the way that Jesus wants to introduce himself is he's the one who died and came to life. He wants to start right off with a clear declaration of what he has overcome. And so as he's getting ready to talk to them about what they're navigating, he wants the, he wants the description of himself for this church to be rooted in what he's already done. He's the one who, who came, and he lived, but he died. That's not the end of the story. He rose again. He came to life. He faced death, and he conquered death. You know, throughout the book of Revelation, there is this word that's used quite a few times. And it's the Greek word, uh, you know the word Nike um, from the, the, the shoe brand. And that there, that's, a, that's a, a Greek word that means victory. And that word is littered throughout the book of Revelation. It's this constant reminder that this, that this story of the world, the story of the world that God is telling, is a story of victory. It's a story of conquering. And as Jesus starts this letter to this little church, he basically says, hey, I'm writing to you as the one who conquered. I'm writing to you as the one who died and then conquered death. I came back from that. And it's like it's the foundation. It's the backdrop for everything else he wants to say to them as this church faces hard things. Jesus is reminding them of his credibility as he calls them to courage. 
just a quick second on like what, what is courage? You know, sometimes like maybe a default thought with courage is something that actually like lends itself to this idea of like the absence of fear. That there's like this, this blind confidence, this like just this aggression or this go get them kind of a kind of a mentality. But that would be a misunderstanding. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is actually being afraid and taking the next right step anyway. Courage is being afraid and taking the next right step anyway. That's what courage is. Courage is actually related to the sense of fear. Courage shows up when there's a legitimate fear in front of you. If there's not a legitimate fear in front of you, it's something else. It's boldness. It's not courage. Courage is actually in response to fear. And courage shows up as taking the next right step anyway. And yes, courage is what we are seeing from the president of Ukraine and from the people of Ukraine right now. Uh, They are outmanned, they are outgunned, and yet they are taking the next right step for their country. Um, I don't know if any of you heard the story, the ghost of Kiev. Man, I wanted that to be true. That, uh, that pilot, uh, there was a, a story of a pilot who like took out six planes in one day, and it's like historic in the history of war, and apparently it ended up not being true. But even if it's not true, like we don't need that story. The stories abound coming out of the Ukraine just of, of um, incredible bravery and courage. And we can find stories all over. We can find stories in, in Afghanistan as we have observed over the last months, especially of all the trauma and the hardship that has been faced in that country. And as we've been able to hear the stories of the Fauna family who uh, join us here for worship and the, the celebration that we have of them getting out of Afghanistan for, for, for safety and for, for uh, uh, good reasons. And they're here in Traverse City with us. Our, our hearts are, are heavy, but they're also encouraged as we see the, the actions and, and the, and the uh, bravery on display. But courage can be hard to come by, too. It's very easy to fold under pressure, to give up due to intense fear. And so here's some good news. If you say, yeah, I'm struggling with courage. I'm facing something super scary, and I struggle with courage. Well, here's one piece of good news. Courage is something that can come from other people. The, the English uh, language reflects this. Uh, I used it just a second ago. The English word encourage. E-N, courage. Encourage. In the English language, that means to give someone courage. That, that's, that's what it means. The word discourage means to take away courage. So if you encourage somebody, you're actually helping them to take the next right step in the face of fear. But if you discourage them, then you're actually taking away the willingness to take the next uh, the next right step anyway. And Jesus here, as he writes to this church, he is encouraging this church as he expresses tenderness for their situation and calls them to keep going. And he does it as the one who died and came to life. So I just want to touch on this quickly because we're in the middle of a series and we'll bump into it again. Uh, I, I mentioned, I think, each of the last two weeks that there's a general pattern that these letters follow. And the, uh, the six components are, there's a description of Jesus. And so today's description is that he's the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. Uh, there's a commendation, an encouragement. Uh, 
There's a confrontation. There's some sort of a call. There's a consequence for disobedience. And then there's a promise. But this is one of the letters that breaks the pattern. And so in this letter to the church at Smyrna, two of the, two of the six do not show up. There is no confrontation. Jesus does not confront the church at Smyrna. And there's no consequence for disobedience. Jesus doesn't address that. He keeps the other four components. He strongly commends them while calling them to courage. And so I just have referenced a few different examples in, in Ukraine. I've obviously mentioned a few different times. But the situation at Smyrna is a little different. The situation that the church at Smyrna is facing, you, you have to imagine it like this. The suffering that they're facing is not just because of their nationality. It's not just because of the, the region that they live in. It's actually due to their beliefs. It's actually due to their faith that they are suffering specifically because they are Christians. Right, right now, the entire nation of Ukraine is, 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 is feeling the effects of a, of a terrible, uh, terrible leader in Russia. In Smyrna's case, in the church of Smyrna, they are suffering. Their neighbor is just you know, whistling to work. But they are under intense pressure because they are followers of Jesus. They were facing danger that most of their neighbors were not facing because of their beliefs. Maybe a little bit more similar to Afghanistan. Afghanistan is, uh, you know, is, it, there's lots and lots of trauma going on there, but it's even worse for Christians. Uh, maybe you saw this, the, the, the data recently, uh, but Afghanistan just replaced North Korea as the most dangerous place in the world for a Christian to live. Extremely dangerous for a Christian to be there. And Smyrna has some of those dynamics. And so Jesus comes along and he, he, he just he puts aside the confrontation for right now. He puts aside the consequences for right now. He keeps the other four elements of his pattern. And he wants to encourage these sufferers in Smyrna. So here's what Jesus says. Here's his evaluation. His commendation is, I know your tribulation your poverty, and the slander that you've endured. So three things. He knows their tribulation. He's talking about their suffering. I, I, I love this. There, there's these three categories. We'll walk through each of them. That, but look at how he says it. I know. He start, starts right there in verse 9. I know. I know your tribulation. It qualifies for all three of these. But I love the fact that Jesus starts right off with, I know all about it. I know every bit of it. I know all the stuff you're facing. I know the suffering that you are enduring. And as we are here on a, in, a, in a real place in Traverse City, Michigan, on March 6, 2022, you may be suffering. And right now, you might be saying, well, okay, I'm suffering, but I'm not suffering as bad as the people in Ukraine, or I'm not suffering as bad as the people in Afghanistan, or I'm not suffering as bad as the church at Smyrna. You know what? That might be true. Your suffering might be worse. Your suffering might be less. But the fact that Jesus knows, that, that, that's true for the whole spectrum. That, that's true for whatever degree of suffering you're enduring. Jesus knows. He knows all about it. He knows all about the hardships, all about the tribulation. He knows everything that you've lost over the last two years related to COVID. 
He knows everything you've lost over the last month or week or day as you've endured what it is that you're enduring. He knows all about it. People are suffering all over the world, and Jesus is aware. Severe trials, long trials, short trials, unknown trials, trials that are on the evening news. Jesus knows all about your trials. And he is introducing himself to this church as the one who died. You think he might know something about trials? You think he might be able to relate to you in regard to your trials? The writer of Hebrews gives us this indication. It says that this high priest, Jesus, he's actually able to sympathize with us in ways that would blow our minds. Sometimes, I mean, Jesus is God in the flesh. We're not, we're not Jesus. Jesus is not us. He's the 100% God, 100% man, unique in all of history, that all of those things are true. But you would be blown away by how much Jesus can relate to you. The Bible wants you to feel that. The Bible wants you to know that. Jesus knows. He knows something about tribulation. He knows what it's like to feel physical pain. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by his friends. He knows what it's like to die. He knows about tribulation. Jesus also knows what it's like to not have his prayers answered. Jesus prayed in the garden. Could you take this cup from me? He submitted himself and said, not my will but yours, but could, could you do it different? And the answer was no. This is the way. Maybe you are in that situation. Maybe you're going through tribulation, going through suffering, and you've prayed, and you can't quite understand the answer to your prayer. You have good company. Don't you think that the church at Smyrna prayed? My guess is that they did, and did with passion. We've prayed for the, the, the nation of Ukraine uh, for, for a couple weeks now. We've prayed for Afghanistan for months now. Wouldn't we love to see U-turns? Wouldn't we love to see these things resolved? We, we, we don't know why these things happen. But Jesus is saying, I know about it. I'm not distant. I haven't quit on you. I know you might not understand. But what it can't be, we don't know what, it, what the reasons are, but what the reason can't be is that he doesn't love us. Can't be that. Because he came and got his hands dirty, lived this life, and he died in order to address the suffering of the world, in order to address the brokenness of this world. Jesus knows. Secondly, he knows about their poverty. This church is literally poor. They have minimal material resources. They are literally poor. And so whatever dynamics were at play with trade in their city, whatever dynamics were at play with their ability to make money in that location, whether it was because of their faith or just because of the nature of the congregation that they had, that church was poor. And then Jesus drops a bomb in the parentheses. There's no parentheses in the original Greek, but there's parentheses probably in your Bible. And this is what Jesus says, but you are rich. What? Have you ever been poor? Have you ever been to the place where it's like you don't, you don't know where the, the money's going to come from to pay the bill? How you're going to buy the diapers or how you're going to pay the mortgage? This church is suffering financially. 
And yet Jesus whispers in their ear, but you are rich. Now, why does Jesus say that? Well, Jesus does not elaborate here. He he doesn't elaborate here, but we can put the pieces together. We, We can recognize that throughout the entire Bible, especially throughout the New Testament, we are invited to see with Jesus's eyes. There's a verse that we looked at last year as a church family in Romans chapter 8. In verse 28, there's this, 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 this language that can leave us sometimes a little frustrated. But it's where God, where, where God invites us into this reality that he is working all things together for our good, for those who love him. All things are being worked together. God, God, God is, is, is at work in the world in a way to where all things are working together for good. That, that is basically saying, hey friend, would you be willing to look at this from Jesus' perspective? Hey, friend, would you be willing to consider that maybe this is not the only way to understand the story? That your bank account might be really, really low. You might not have a bank account. You might be in debt. You might have nothing materially. But Jesus is talking to his people, and he says to them, you are rich. In other words, they're rich in the only way that really matters. Jesus knows all about loss. Jesus lost everything. You know how Paul puts it in one of his letters to the church at Corinth? He says, he who was rich, Jesus, eternally rich, became poor. He left all of that, those riches in heaven. And he became poor so that we could become rich in the only way that matters. Jesus became poor to rescue us out of our ultimate poverty, our poverty of, of, of sin and, and separation from God. And as Jesus looks at this church, he recognizes that the poverty is real, that the, the, that the poorness is real, that their lack of resources is real. But in his grace, he says, don't, don't forget, though, like, you're rich in the fundamental way. You're, you're rich in the way that really matters. You're rich in the eternal way. And so if you're a follower of Jesus and you see the world from this perspective, you recognize what Jesus has done for you, what he has won for you, then it will change your view of the world and it will change your view of money. You don't have to be controlled by money. You don't have to be controlled by needing more and you don't have to be controlled by being afraid of it. You can actually see money as a resource, as green pieces of paper. They're a good gift from God. They're necessary to navigate the world, but you can hold your hands open because God's changed your perspective on what having money means. That you actually recognize that you're rich in the only way that matters. That does not mean that you don't suffer if you're poor. Jesus is talking to them about that suffering. Jesus is aware of that suffering. He's just saying it's not the only way to understand the story. That's a legitimate thing to bring before God. It's a legitimate thing for us to care for each other and to meet each other's needs. The Bible invites us into that. He's just saying, do you have something underneath your net worth? Do you have something underneath what your, what, what, what your bank account says? And Jesus is like, I'm telling you, you do. You're rich, and you're rich in the only way that matters. Not, not negating the difficulty of being poor. He's just inviting us to look at the world from his perspective. And then third, he knows the slander against them. And you know that old rhyme, uh, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And we know how untrue that phrase is. We know that it's often words that hurt far more than the physical pains. 
And Jesus here in this third category is referring to words. And it's a helpful addition because it does clarify the fact that in that first category, the tribulations, he is talking about physical suffering. He is talking about real actions, violence against them. Here he's talking about words against them. And it appears that this church has lost their reputation. And Jesus knows that they've lost their reputation. They're being slandered. Now, we don't know who's actively doing the slandering necessarily. It could be from the Jews. It could be from their neighbors. It could be from the government. Not sure, but they're getting talked about in unfair ways. What we do know is the origin. That it is the Jewish people who are the origin of the slander. That it's coming from these, these Jews that are in their city. As I mentioned a few moments ago, the historical record shows that the Jewish oppression of Christians was severe in certain places, and it was, a, it was severe here. And they're in a synagogue, just, apparently just down the street from them. Now, if you're, if you're familiar with this text, you might know that throughout church history, it has been used in anti-Semitic ways. It's been used in ways that have been violent and unfair to the Jewish people because of the way it talks about the synagogue of Satan. And, and I, I, I'm not going to take a ton of time to, to address this, but listen, you need me to say it. Jesus is not anti-Semitic. John, who wrote Revelation, is not anti-Semitic. They are both Jews, and they have a heart for the Jewish people. What If you keep reading, what you find out is they're not even Jews, according to Jesus. In other words, they're not being faithful to anything about being Jewish. You know, the message of the New Testament is that the Messiah that the Jewish people were waiting for has actually shown up. He's actually present. Jesus is with them, and they're missing him. And the Jewish leaders actually go so far as killing him and then killing his followers. And so when Jesus talks about this situation, he's like, I know it's the Jewish people from that synagogue down the road that are doing this, that they're the origin, but they're not even Jews. They're not being faithful to anything that the Jewish people have been faithful to. And their synagogue, whether intentionally or unintentionally, is doing the work of Satan here. They are leading to the persecution and the harm against God's people. So there's probably more I could say, but I'm going to leave it there. The point of this third category, slander, is that the loss of your reputation is no small thing. The loss of your reputation is something that hurts. It is right for you to lament it. I, I have been down this road, maybe you've been down this road, where you have not just in private, but maybe in public ways, have had said things said about you that are not true, that are not fair. But the invitation here is, again, very similar to the way that Jesus is talking about poverty. It's inviting you into seeing the world from his perspective. That what Jesus has to say about you is more important than what anyone else could ever say about you. And the way that he thinks about his people, the way that he guards his people and carries his people and protects his people, invites us to say this, I can trust God with my reputation. Because what Jesus has to say about me is that I am his, that he knows my name, that I've been welcomed into the family, that he smiles upon me. That he looks upon me as he looks upon Christ. And he says, welcome. So Jesus is celebrating their courage as he identifies these, these various uh, aspects of their current story. And again, Jesus does not confront 
this church. Apparently, he just wants to comfort them. But he's not done. He does have a call. He does give them some instruction. And this is what he says as he closes out this little letter. He says, do not fear. Be faithful unto death. So there in verse 10, do not fear. Do not fear. Boy, they have demonstrated faithfulness. They've demonstrated courage. I know none of us want to hear this, but it is going to get worse. Verse 10 says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. And sometimes we feel like I am at the limit here. Surely this is the bottom. Surely this is the bottom of the barrel. And yet, a group of people that Jesus has just comforted, a group of people that Jesus says, I know every angle of this. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. It's actually going to get worse. He reveals that the devil is involved in this, in these persecutions. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, like, I think it's right to consider here or to recognize that the devil himself is not going to come and grab them by the hand and throw them in jail. That what Jesus is saying is that Satan is at work in the world in ways in which he is using human resources, sometimes by their knowledge, sometimes not to their knowledge. But that Satan is at work in the world and he is trying to thwart God's work. And Satan, the devil, is going to be involved in the persecutions that this church is about to to face. And if you don't believe that the devil is real, um, you know, we can... Shoot me an email. We can, we can talk about that. Uh, the Bible is under a, uh, a constant assumption that the devil is real. That spiritual forces are what the real story actually is. The Apostle Paul at one point says the battle isn't against flesh and blood. It's actually in the spiritual realm. It's a real deal. And Jesus, as he talks to this church, and he says it's going to get worse, he's like, in a sense, he's saying, remember, you have an enemy who walks around like a lion seeking who he can devour. Jesus is saying, don't forget that this is a spiritual battle too. It's not just about prison bars. It's a spiritual battle. And then Jesus calls it a test. You know, and and this this is hard to hear, but it's actually, there's something comforting here. Jesus says that it's a test and it's like a test, like, like that gold, as gold gets tested, when gold gets tested, what happens is that gold is getting purified, that gold is being made beautiful, that it goes through all the heat of, you know, in that sense, goes through the trial to come out on the other end in better shape, more beautiful, more pure. And Jesus is saying to this church, I know what you're facing and I know how hard it's been. You don't know what's around the next corner, but it's worse. And guess what God's going to do with it? He's going to treat it like like he's going to let it purify you. He's actually going to let it make you purer and more beautiful. He's going to use it for your good. I vote for something else. Do you vote for something else? Yeah, I know. We all do. But Jesus says, no, this is the way. This, this is the way, and, and God in his grace allows these sufferings that, that Satan is at work in, right? I mean, look, Satan is in work here. Satan is the one who says he's going to throw him in prison, and yet Jesus says it's going to work out to actually purify you. 
It's actually going to work out to make you more beautiful. Then he has some good news. It's going to be brief. He uses a term that I think it's right to consider this as, as figurative. It's referencing back to a passage in an Old Testament book called Daniel. But he says, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. I think that's figurative. But the figurative idea is it's not that long. It's brief. A friend of mine tweeted this. Suffering has an end date. Joy doesn't. But brief doesn't mean easy. And what you find out here is that the persecution, it might be brief, but for some of them, uh, it's going to be brief for a shocking reason. It's going to be brief because some of them are going to die. And Jesus is making it as clear as possible. In, in a book full of imagery, full of symbolism, Jesus is making sure they hear him. He means real physical death. That this persecution, this suffering that they're going to go through, it is going to result in some of them dying. So Jesus is telling them they actually need more courage. They actually need more courage. Jesus is celebrating the courage he sees, and he's calling them to remain courageous. And remember, courage is not the absence of fear. It's being afraid and taking the next right step anyway. So Jesus says to this church, more is coming. I want you to remain courageous. Jesus knows something, though. Left to themselves, left to ourselves, courage is pretty limited. Maybe you can stand up to physical violence. Maybe you can stand up to financial strain. Maybe you can stand up to verbal abuse. But what about the ultimate enemy? What about the ultimate trial, the trial of death? Even if you say, well, I don't have to worry about that. I want to die with honor so that my family respects me and that my community respects me. Well, guess what? That, that, that's, that's a fine thing. But even they will forget you. What, what about you? How, how are you going to handle the ultimate trial of death? What about your soul? You need more than just to stand firm or hang in there. Look at how Jesus encourages them. A great and rich promise. And here it is. You will not be hurt by the second death. How good a news is that? I mean, look at verse 10. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. This idea of the crown of life, it's not something extra. The crown of life is not, is not a bonus. The, the construction in the Greek here is very, very clear. That the crown of life is life. That the crown of life is the eternal life. That, that's what Jesus is saying to them. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you eternal life. I will give you life eternal that's what I'm promising. That's what's on the table. In other words, you might die a physical death, but you will be rescued from the second death. Your soul will be rescued. You will live forever. You will not experience spiritual death. You will not experience eternal death, even though you may experience physical death. This is another invitation to see life here and now from Jesus' perspective. A minute ago, he says you're rich even though you're not materially. He says your reputation is beautiful, even though you're being slandered. Here he says, 
You're going to live for de- forever even though you might die. And listen, death is undefeated with the exception of Jesus, right? We're all going to die, and yet we can live. This is the promise that Jesus offers to his people. And this is the perspective that God's people have had. We long for something better. In our prayer time this morning, we read from Hebrews 13, where we recognize that we long for a better city, that we recognize that this earth as it is is not our eternal home. We want something better. And so we align our life with Jesus, and we put our hope in him, and we trust him for what is coming. We long for a better city. And if you just turn a few pages further in your Bible, in Revelation chapter 7, you find out that this city, what we long for, boy, is it good. This is, what, this is what's written in Revelation chapter 7. Verse 13, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor the scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will, be their, he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes." That's that's what happens to the saints. That's the condition that Jesus says, if you're faithful to death, if you've put your hope in me, then this this is what happens. I'm your shepherd. God will be with his people. No more tears. No more hunger. No more poverty. No more slander. That's what's coming. That's the better city. And Jesus says, That's what I'm promising you. You will not be hurt by the second death. I'll give you the crown of eternal life. Jesus is offering us a truer history, a clearer perspective, a better story. The way that Jesus talks here opens the door of hope wide to the joy that Jesus promises in the face of all the challenges of this life. And it makes courage the most logical response. You know, Paul one time writing to a group of Christians, he says that there is a peace that passes understanding. He says there's a way, people of God, that you navigate this world that the rest of the world's going to be like, what? They shouldn't be acting like that. They have no money. They shouldn't be acting like that. They have no reputation. They shouldn't be acting like that. They're suffering. They shouldn't be acting like that. They're getting thrown in jail. They shouldn't be acting like that. Don't they know their brothers and sisters are being killed? For believing that? And yet courage is the most logical response. Joy is the most logical response. When you're seeing the world from Jesus' perspective. See, our death-conquering Christ has the power to make us conquerors. And Paul in the book of Romans actually says that we're more than conquerors. So you need courage? You want courage? Root yourself in Jesus. The one who died and came to life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. As we move to communion, Jesus is encouraging the church in Smyrna by reminding them of the great promises of God. It's what Paul means in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says, encourage the faint-hearted. That's what Jesus is doing. He's coming alongside a church that's suffering and he's encouraging the faint-hearted. 
It's what I pray and I hope and pray happens every Sunday as you gather here for worship is that, the, that we encourage the faint-hearted. It's what I hope happens with our Ukrainian brothers and sisters in just a few minutes when we gather with them and sing. I hope this is what multiplies for all of us as we walk with Jesus day after day. We all need courage, and Jesus offers it in spades. As you, you know, Jesus has faced death, as you come to this communion table, remember that his body was broken and that his blood was spilled. And when he did that, he made it crystal clear that he did it for you. And part of the joy that was set before Jesus was the people that he would rescue. Why, why did Jesus endure the cross? For the joy that was set before him. What was part of that joy? You. You were part of that joy. So as you come to this table today, remember, if you're a Christian, get up here and receive the encouragement to follow Jesus through the thick and the thin. Whoever has an ear to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. If our servers would please come. God, thank you for this, this passage. God, we know it touches on super sensitive spots for many people in this room. God, we think of the Fauna family and their friends and relatives that are still in Afghanistan. We think of our Ukrainian brothers and sisters as they still have family and friends uh, in Ukraine. We think of the people uh, in those nations and the suffering that they have endured. And then, God, we think of the countless stories in this room, those who are enduring trials that are far longer than they expected. God, would you give each and every one courage? God, would you allow that courage to flow from this better perspective, this recognition of what Jesus has won for us in the message of the gospel? And then, God, just the sobering reality that we don't know what's around the next corner. God, would you help us not to fear what is about to come? Would you help us to have rock-solid confidence that these things are true even if suffering comes? We need your help. We thank you that Jesus gives us courage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.